0: Support for WERU comes from our listeners and Opera House Arts at the Stonington Opera House with a schedule of concerts, theater, live family entertainment, and first-run movies. Tickets and information at operahousearts.org.
1: This is WERU FM
2: 89.9 Blue Hill and on the web at WERU.org. Support for WERU comes from Easterly Wine of Belfast, Maine an independent enterprise that supports free speech, democracy, and independent media.
3: All right, Addy, you are up. Hi, you're listening to WERU FM from our studios in Orland, Maine. WERU is at 89.9 in Blue Hill, 99.9 in Bangor, and streaming on the web at weru.org. Thanks for listening. Thank you. That was excellent. And this is Maine Currents, independent local news, views, and culture for Tuesday, August 8, 2017. I'm Amy Brown. Today we bring you Act 2 of My Maine, the state as experienced by local storytellers. This was recorded on July 26th at the Alamo Theater in Bucksport at an event that was sponsored by WERU and Bucksport's Wednesdays on Maine. Today we'll hear four stories, or we'll hear stories, four of them, yes, but they are by Amy Rader, Brooke Minner, Naomi Chase and our own John Greenman, along with his wife, Katie. This starts with me introducing Amy Rader at the event. And uh, our first storyteller in the second half is Amy Rader, who is a returning storyteller. You will have heard her here last year. We first heard her speaking at the Queen City Cellar Tellers a few years ago, and I've been inviting her to everything we do ever since then, because she's great. And... uh, (laughs) And that's not even the best part. Amy has just finished, she's the director of education at the Penobscot Theatre Company. She has just finished directing a musical that had 63 kids in the cast. Wow. Big round of applause for Amy Rader.
4: Thank you so much. Uh, I'd like to begin by singing my favorite summer camp song, and if you know it, I'm just going to sing the first verse. If you know it, please sing along. Today, while the blossoms still cling to the vine, I'll taste your strawberries, I'll drink your sweet wine. A million tomorrows shall all pass away, ere I forget all the joy that is mine today Thank you. I gotta, there's harmony down here, that's amazing. <laughs> so I'm a camper from way back and when I was little I went to uh, YMCA camp Itahopi. First as a camper, then as a counselor. Itahopi is a presumably fake Native American word that we were told meant bear your own burden. For those of you uh, listening later, I just did air quotes around bear your own burden. So basically, I went to camp, suck it up and take it, (laughs) or camp, rub some dirt on it and walk it off. Uh, Parenthetically, I attended asthma camp at YMCA Camp (laughs) It and that particular camp session was called Camp Super Kids. I'm a super kid. It was just as delightfully pathetic as you might imagine. But I loved camp because it was there that I learned how to be brave, how to be confident and compassionate. I learned that the only way we fail in life is by not trying. I walked away from that camp feeling six foot tall and bulletproof and that feeling lasted about two weeks into the next school year. But I've been chasing that feeling ever since, every year of my life. Camp also taught me about loss. Because at the end of my first summer at camp, we all hugged each other and we were promised to come back the next year, promised that everything would be the same. But of course it wasn't. And at some campfire that next year, I remember looking around and realizing that I might never see some of these people ever again in this lifetime. It was a shock for me. Also, I was 12. (laughs) I wanted to hold on to that moment forever. I wanted to trap my friends in amber and never, ever lose them. But of course I did, over and over, year after year. These days, I'm responsible for my own summer program, as you heard, Uh, a theater program in an almost 100-year-old opera house in Bangor, Maine. And this is where I get to the theme of the night. Thank you. Theater shares a commonality with asthma camp. As soon as the final curtain closes, that little family you made during the play is gone. I once had an acting professor tell my graduate cohort before our final showcase performance, look around. This is the last time this group of people will ever be in a room together. What a gut punch. (laughs) Like, thanks a lot, Ray. So what do I do? I inflict this on other people. At the closing night of every show I do, I tell my actors, look around. This is the last time this group of people will ever be in the same room together. Enjoy it. Live every moment. Keep in mind some of my actors are as young as four. (laughs) I may not be a good person. (laughs) So we just finished Adam's Family the Musical on Sunday. It's a comedy and comedy is my wheelhouse. It's also my security blanket, my defense mechanism, as you're going to see later in this story. There are a couple of touching moments in the show, uh, most of which I ruined with comedy, but I left one alone. It's a song called Happy Sad. It's about how Gomez Adams is happy to see that the woman that Wednesday Adams is becoming, but sad that she's not his little girl anymore. Almost as an afterthought, I asked my Wednesday to put her feet on Gomez's feet and let him dance with her. You know, the, the daddy-daughter thing when daddies teach their, their daughters to dance by having their feet on theirs and they move their own feet? It was a simple little thing, and I didn't think about it again. On opening night, I sat on the, in the back of the theater on a bench behind the sound booth next to a friend. The show was phenomenal, the cast was killing it, the audience was in the palm of their little, young, sweaty hands, and then came Happy Sad. I was fine until Wednesday stepped onto her dad's feet. And that's when my friend sitting next to me grabbed my hand and squeezed, and I started to cry in this embarrassingly huge way that I usually reserve for drunken viewings of Lilo and Stitch, and I could not stop. (laughs) A little backstory: The friend who squeezed my hand recently lost his father. And I, even more recently, lost mine. In March, about the middle of March, I got a call, and it was from my dad's uh, GP telling me that he had weeks to months to live. The next day, the very next day, his oncologist called and said, maybe weeks. The day after that? a nurse that evaluated my dad for hospice care called and said, Days, get here now. So I went home to Minnesota, and almost immediately upon getting home, my dad was admitted into hospice care in the hospital. I spent a week in his room sleeping on a couch. I didn't leave his side until someone forced me to. I will say that hospice care is a wonderful and compassionate service that I hope none of you ever needs to find that out. One thing they did for us was send a music therapist in to talk to us. And she came in with a guitar and she asked me if I wanted to sing. And I was like, hell no. The last thing I wanted to do was sing. I wanted to cry. I wanted to scream. I wanted to break shit. But I said yes. And then she asked me, what kind of music do you want to sing? And I said, camp songs. (laughs) I I looked at her, she had a guitar, she had comfy shoes, a sensible haircut, I mean, odds are this woman had Sarah Sponda on lockdown since she was 12 years old, so I figured I was good, and she started to play her guitar. And you know what she played? Today, while the blossoms still cling to the vine. So I held my dad's hand and I sang for him. For him. And it's one of the few times in my life that I've sung for someone else. And then early one morning, after about a week had passed in the hospital, in the blackness of the early morning before dawn, my dad left. I woke up. I knew he was gone. I cried until my mom got there, but then I had to stop. I had to stop because I was the person who had to get things done. I didn't get to grieve. I had to call insurance companies, the VA, credit cards, find wills, buy groceries, make food, plan a funeral... Of course I cried at the funeral, but only at the grave and not in front of anyone, because that's the only acceptable show of emotion in Minnesota. There's a joke that goes, did you hear the one about the Minnesota farmer who loved his wife so much he almost told her? (laughs) So after that, my grief didn't have anywhere to go. And then I came home to my real home, to Maine, and there were children to take care of, and work to catch up on, and a thousand million billion other things demanding my attention. But last Thursday, in the back of the theater, I learned what happens to a grief deferred. It comes out when you least expect it, and we're absolutely unprepared to deal with it, and it is messy. And the hell of it is, I staged that little moment myself. I knew it was coming, but it did not matter. My Wednesday was so guileless and my Gomez so earnest that in that moment I was seeing myself dancing with my dad on stage. I was seeing all daughters and all dads. But to be perfectly honest, my dad never danced with me on his feet. He tried once, but I was a real fat kid and he couldn't lift his feet. (laughs) But he did a thousand other things like that. He let me ride on the crossbar of his bike when he biked downtown to buy the newspaper. He taught me how to drive. He taught me how to swing a baseball bat. He taught me how to lie to my mother about speeding tickets. (laughs) And it's all the same spirit, right? Put your feet on mine, I'll show you how to dance. Put your hands next to mine, I'll show you how to swing that bat. Put your heart in mine. I'll show you how to love. So on the last night of the show, which was this past Sunday, I was feeling especially raw, and I avoided my Gomez during the party. I I was striking the costumes. I was scraping up bits of cupcake from our much-abused carpet. And at the end of the cast party, I, I couldn't avoid it anymore. My cast was saying goodbye. They were giving hugs. They were promising that they would be back next year and everything was going to be exactly the same and they were walking out of that theater six foot tall and bulletproof. But there he was, coming toward me. This kid, this 18-year-old with a painted on mustache coming to say his goodbyes. But what on earth could I say to him in that moment that wouldn't come out strange? How could I vomit all of my middle-aged lady sorrow on this young person who is in the awkward place in between the world of childhood and the world of adulthood without it being overwhelming and embarrassing? How could I thank this kid who did something for me that I couldn't do for myself for opening up a space in the world where my grief could just be? In the end, I said something to him that I realized in retrospect was the same thing I said to my father on his last night as he lay in his own liminal place suspended between this world and the next. I said thank you.
5: You did a real good job.
3: Was Amy Rader at My Maine, the story of the state as experienced by local storytellers on July 26th, the WERU event co sponsored by Wednesday on Maine held at the Alamo Theater? I'm Amy Brown here with John Greenman and his pledge drive.
0: This was uh, an incredible night that we're looking back at, and uh, we'll hear more. But uh, what a poignant story, and how mm. filled with emotion. And and I was thinking about the history that that she was talking about and how. If we, if we don't learn from history, how we repeat it. And actually, that is right into what On Tyranny is all about, the special thing that we're giving away on Friday afternoon right. at uh, Democracy Now!, right. right?
3: Everyone who calls in during any of the pledge drive or any of the public affairs blocks during the pledge drive will be put in the watering can. Friday, we'll do a drawing for this little it's kind of a small book or a pamphlet it kind of is. thing. It
0: is twenty lessons from the twentieth century, and it, it talks about basically if you if you know if you don't learn from history, you could repeat it. And there's gives all sorts of advice like do not obey in advance, um, uh, remember professional ethics. I mean, it's it's all over the place twenty times. But for those of you who are interested, one eight hundred six four three six two seven three will get your name into the selection box, which will be drawn from on Friday afternoon after Democracy Now. And please uh, don't hesitate to call right now because this is worth it
2: that's
3: right and so is local storytelling so we hope you'll call and support that we're going to go right back to the local stories but again the phone number is 1-800-643-6273 here on main currents we our tagline is independent local news views and culture and in the summertime we tend to hit a lot on the culture and the local storytelling scene and we hope you appreciate that as well so call 1-800-643-6273 make a pledge Our next story is by Brooke Minner. She lives in Bucksport with her husband, Mark Eastman, and their daughter, Mabel. She's a librarian and a community organizer who never thought that she would be living here in Maine. And her story is called, The Unlikely Story of How I Moved to Maine Twice.
5: Um, So hello, Uh, my name is Brooke and my story is about uh, how I moved to Maine. Not once, but twice. Uh, So the story begins in the spring of 1996, and I was uh, 18 years old, and I had graduated from high school uh, a semester early, and I traveled around a little bit with some friends of mine and then came back to my hometown of Flagstaff, Arizona, which is in the the northern part of Arizona in the mountains um, and and where I had grown up. And I was really... uh, bored and um, kind of just hanging around. Most of my friends were still in school and I couldn't really find any meaningful work. And I was definitely uh, on the lookout for adventure, I would say. So some friends of my parents called me up and said that they had these two young men, these boys who were staying at their house. They were gonna be there for a few weeks and, uh, and they were from Maine. And and did I want to come meet them and, you know, show them around town? And yes, I definitely did. Uh, but at the time, Maine, I didn't really have any um, sense of, of what Maine was about. I had traveled a little bit in this country, and I had been to some other countries, but I had never been to New England, and I'd certainly never been to Maine. And when you grow up in Arizona, Maine is kind of a, a vague um, notion. And so yeah and so all I knew actually about Maine and New England, and they were kind of like the same thing to me at the time was um murder she wrote, which um was yeah like my favorite show as a as a kid, which I later found out was not even actually filmed in Maine, which is disappointing and um And then uh, New Kids on the Block, who were from Boston, um, and all their videos were like, Boston, kind of, so that's all I knew, that was all I had. So I I went over, and I I met these guys, and they were great, and I liked them a lot, and um, they made Maine sound cool, uh, and I liked one of them a a whole lot, and so... um, so yeah, just a few months later I found myself on a plane and I flew to Maine um, to spend the summer before I went to college in Camden. And so I landed, you know, Bangor, I went to Camden and it was really um, kind of a culture shock for me. Um, and I, and as, thinking about this story, I think it's sort of a culture shock on kind of three levels. And the first... Um, it was definitely the weather, not a surprise to anybody who's ever come to Maine from someplace else. So I was freezing all the time and, um, you know, like desperately cold and I just couldn't even understand it was late June and it was like, you know, and, and then the second thing about that weather, um, was the fog. Like I, I had never encountered fog. Um, and I didn't really, know what to make of it, um, except that it frightened me and it felt um, like, you know, every Stephen King kind of, you know, movie. And i actually I, I had a job in downtown camden, and i I would walk um, through this graveyard. It was like a shortcut and it shaved several minutes off my but if, when it was foggy you know i was I was certain that like a hand or something was <laughs> going to come up, and so I would dat you know i'd sprint through the graveyard and just get to work so the the whole weather thing was a problem for me um, and then and then it was sort of like the people because i I landed there in camden and I, I was sort of uh, with this kind of wealthy group of young people um, and and they did things like, um, like they went to boarding school, which is like not a thing that we do in, in Arizona. And I, I thought like that only happened on TV, um, but they really did do that. And also they would do things like, um, you know, like take out their parents' sailboat and um, sail us to these islands, these idyllic, you know, places, and we have these big parties, and, you know, it was great, I mean, I'm not complaining, but I was just totally out of my league by, like, a lot, and uh, and I knew that immediately, um, and then the third bit of it was was kind of, like, the other people, um, which I would now, I guess, now say, are like, the Mainers, or the year-round people, but um, I didn't know, I didn't have any language for that at the time, and I think maybe the best illustration of of this is I I would go into, like, those little shops in downtown Camden, these very sweet little stores, and, uh, you know, you walk in, and there's, like, one person running the store, and, like, they don't say anything to you, you know, like, they don't acknowledge that you've just walked in the store, and I... You know, it was very confusing to me, and I spent a lot of time thinking, like, you know, is it me, like, you know, or is it the fog, or like, what? Like, what, what's, I, I didn't know, you know, I didn't know what was going on. Um, so, yeah, so there I was. So fast forward four years, uh, I, I graduated from college, and I had continued to come back to Camden every summer uh, in between and i I finished school, and um, I didn't have a job, you know, and I didn't have a plan, um, which is not like a shock. I had a history degree, so like eh, you know there's not um, a lot to do there and so my boyfriend, the same one that I had met you know in Flagstaff all these years before, he he convinced me to um, to take a job on a boat um, so, yeah, I, nothing about boats, right? I grew up in Arizona. There are no boats. Um, and and this is, like, a very large boat, a private yacht, and we were, uh, c- we're going to crew on this boat, um, the whole thing, like the love boat outfit and the whole deal. So... Um, you know, the the money was good, and, uh, and we were going to live for free on this boat, and we were going to spend the year uh, going up and down the Caribbean. And, and that all sounded good, and it would have been good, uh, except that our relationship was really, like, falling apart. Um, and we were kind of at the beginning of what became a, a year-long, sort of prolonged awful, messy breakup, so why not go to a place where you have to, you know, work together all day long, every day, and, uh, yeah, and live with strangers in very close quarters, Um, yeah, because although the boat was big, the crew live in a, a little small spot down below the water. Um, so yeah, it sounded good, but it was not good. Um, and I, but I did it, and we, we got on this boat, and we left the country, and things, you know, just went downhill immediately, and we were sort of fighting all the time, except there was nowhere to fight, really, so it was, like, quiet fighting, <laughs> like, like when you pass in the hallway, and, and, um, yeah, it was not good, and, um, so, uh, I, I knew almost immediately, Like one, once I got back to the States, um, I would leave the job and leave this relationship and, and go back to Flagstaff, which is really where I wanted to be and, and really was my home. Um, but it was difficult to leave while we were abroad and, and in this job, and I would made this commitment and I felt like I should do it. So things are just sort of steadily uh, going downhill. And, um, at some point during that winter, uh, the boat that I was working on, we were in St. Martin, uh, in the Caribbean, and a a friend who worked on a different boat was also there, and and she asked if we wanted to come out and meet her and, uh, you know, go for drinks, which was a thing that we did a lot of (laughs) those days, and so, so we went to meet her, and she had brought along a co-worker of hers, this guy, and, um, you know, he was nice, and he seemed really interesting, and uh, I spent the night just kind of talking to him and ignoring everyone else, and he seemed like such a kind person, Um, but in the course of our conversation, he says, um, oh, yeah, pretty soon, I'm going to leave the boat thing, and I'm going to go back to Maine, yeah, yeah. Uh, and I'm going to build a house, and I'm going to build a house in Happy Town. And I'm like, <laughs> uh, it's a good, um, it was it was effective, um, you know, as a as a pickup line. So, but you know, but at the time I thought, well, not my thing. Obviously, I'm never going to live in Maine again. I'm going to leave. And so, so we met, and and that was that. And um, I did go back to the states, and I did leave the job and I did leave the guy and I actually left Maine in a somewhat like epic way. I, I had this I had this nineteen eighty two Volvo station wagon. It was red and I named it Rosie and I loved this car. But by the time I actually left Camden and, and started driving to Flagstaff um, the back window of the car was smashed out. There was no window at all. So the exhaust was just kind of flowing through the car. And the car was like full of some other woman's like clothes and shoes, which is another story for another time. But, um, <laughs> but I left, you know, I got out. And I, I went back to Flagstaff. And I, I got a job um, working at this kind of locally famous bakery, which was sort of my dream job at the time. Um, it was great, and and I had stayed in touch though with the guy from the bar, St. Martin, and uh, we had even managed to see each other a few times in between. And and he came to Flagstaff to to visit, and then he came back, um, and he didn't leave, uh, and so we we lived there together for a bit, and it was a really happy time, um, but in retrospect, I I think you know. Like, he was waiting me out, like, because, you know, Happy Town and Maine and the whole thing. And so, you know, in my mind, I thought, I'll never go back to Maine, because what a a place. Like, it's just, it's a lot. And, uh, but anyhow, so a few months after he came to Flagstaff, it was, circumstances came about, we were moving back to Maine, which I could not believe, you know, I really, and I, in preparation for telling the story because I've always thought like How random! Like two men from Maine who I didn't meet in Maine and who didn't know each. I mean, you know, like what are the chances? My whole family is Southwest. Um, So I actually I looked it up, and and uh, there's about a million people in Maine, and uh, half of them, you know, roughly are men. And if you if you look then at the number of men in the whole country, .001 percent of men are from Maine. Like it's random. It is. Random, it is. Yeah. So, so there I was, and uh, and we were going to move back to Maine. And so we did, in fact, come back. And um, you know, fifteen years later, uh, here I am, uh, still living here, much to my surprise. And uh, there are still things about Maine that I find really challenging, but there are a lot of things that I've um, come to see through a new light. You know, the weather, especially, I have a whole new take on, um, because when you live in Maine, you know, year-round, uh, the the cold and the dark of January is made so much easier by the heat and the light of July, and sort of following that, that yearly cycle um, has become very meaningful to me. And then, of course, the people who I struggled for years to understand, Um, many of them have become my dearest friends, including many of those kind of summer kids in Camden uh, have become lifelong friends. And I certainly see the sort of Mainer attitude through a whole new light, uh, sort of a dignified and reserved Personality, who, you know, in many cases are rightfully so uh, wary of outsiders. Maine has this kind of complicated history, uh, which I had no idea of. And, uh, and then, you know, most recently, um, we bought a, a house here in town that feels like an old house to me. It's not old at all by Maine standards. It's like 50 or 60 years old, but it feels very old to me. And uh, there's so much about it that I love. Um, when you climb the stairs to the second floor of our house, at the top, the banister is all—it's all worn down, you know. And every time I see it, I think about all the families and all the people who have lived in that house and who have sort of climbed those stairs and put their hand there. And I—I I, I can really feel them being there. Uh, there's these particular spots on the floor where it, it creaks, you know. It's an old house, and. Um, and I love that. Uh, I feel very connected to it. And, and also, I think, um, the light in Maine, which changes so significantly over the seasons. I, again, I've just come to appreciate it in a way that I, I wouldn't have known had I only come in the summer. And then also, of course, um, I have a husband and a daughter now who are Mainers, uh, which makes me see things um, completely differently and through their eyes. And so last summer, I realized early on in the summer um, that it was my 20th summer in Maine. I had been other places throughout the year, but it was my 20th summer in Maine, uh, and I was 39, so it's more than half my life. And um, so to kind of honor that or celebrate, I bought this little T-shirt that has a picture of Maine, like the state of Maine, and has the words home on it. And uh, I think... This summer, which is my 21st, um, that feels like that's really true. So, thank you.
3: Is <laughs> Brooke Ewing Minner
5: speaking
3: at telling her story at My Maine, the state as experienced by local storytellers, on July 26th in Bucksport. I'm having a hard time talking today, John. <laughs> Why don't you take over?
0: Well, all eight hundred six four three six two seven three. 643 1-800-643-6273. By the way, you will be able to hear the rest of that story archived.
3: Right. right. The full story, this story that you just heard by Brooke, we edited out a chunk of that. But it will be included as kind of a bonus track uh, on the archives along with the archives of today's show. And the same is true of the next one that you're about to hear from Naomi Gray Chase. Both we had to edit just so that we could fit them into the hour today.
0: And you may be wondering why I said 1 eight hundred six four three six two seven three. You know, yeah, it's maybe a sort of a hidden code. It's, a, it's actually it's a, it's a number that you can use to get into our back room. That's
3: right. But but be we, one of us.
0: And we are on a, a fundraising kick here for the whole week. We're Hoping to get by the end of the week 15,000, we're at 7,800 oh, 7,183, so just almost half done. We're really, really looking for those of you who've never mem- been members before. The new membership is so important because it indicates a future that is steady and uh, really. Um, uh, predictable. So we're hoping for 100 new members by the end of the week. We're at 44. So we've got a little ways to go, but we're halfway through.
3: Right, right. And uh, it's important to hear from people who appreciate the local independent media here on WERU, the storytelling thing. So if you're listening to the stories and you don't want to run away and get to your phone right now, you can go to WERU.org or call in later and make a pledge and uh, just help keep the radio station independent, become part of it, help keep the station going into the future, 1-800-643-6273. Up next is Naomi Gracie. She's a Maine native and therefore, she says, has hardly explored Maine at all. She has, however, <laughs> followed her compass wherever, whenever it pointed north and says she is very glad that she did. Her story is called My Maine. I grew up here. Not here in the Alamo
1: Theater, although I bet that would have been awesome. I lived up I grew up on the mean streets of Bucksport. <laughs> and also Orland. I grew up in Bucksport in Orland. So this should be my main. I grew up here, my parents grew up here, my grandparents grew up here, my family has been growing up here since the 18th century. This should feel like my main. And some aspects of it do, fields of lupin. That's my main. Dappled sunlight on a dirt camp road. That's my main. All the bodies of water. That's my main. But growing up here, I never felt like this was my main. I never felt like I belonged to it or it belonged to me. There are things about me that set me apart from my peers in ways that are uncomfortable. And there are things about me that set me apart from my family in ways that are uncomfortable. There are things about me that set me apart from my community at large in ways that are uncomfortable. And that discomfort became so profound that by the time I was a teenager, it didn't feel survivable. I didn't feel like I could stay here and also stay alive. So luckily, I got into a really good college and got a ton of financial aid, and I bailed. I went straight out into the world. And I lived away for 15 years. I lived in California, and Washington DC, and Western Massachusetts. But even during all of those years, when I was making a life that wasn't here, I came home every six months. I have never in my life been away from Buxford and Orland for more than six months. This is partly because my nephew was born in 1996, and my heart could not stand to be apart from that child who just turned 21. And also, conveniently, his birthday and my birthday are exactly six months from Christmas, so if you come home twice a year, every six months there's presents. <laughs> So I came home, every six months. But even those visits were not really good for me. It was a difficult place for me to be. I would arrive back in this place, and while there were people and places and things that I really loved and missed when I was away, the experience of being here was crushing, devastating, not survivable, damaging, which is why, When I decided to move back in 2010, every single person I have ever met in my entire life said, why did you move home? Why did you move home? Everywhere I went, why why did you move home? I would be in the bread aisle at the Hannaford and Bucksport. Why did you move home? It happened so much, and it was so stressful for me that I stopped going to the Hannaford and Bucksport for three years. (laughs) I didn't shop at the Hannaford and Bucksport. I made my partner at the time, Peter, do all the grocery shopping because I couldn't handle getting asked, why did you move back home? And the reason I couldn't handle it is partly because I didn't know, and it was really stressful to try to answer a question I didn't know the answer to. It was partly because my answer was that I have a compass inside me, and that that compass was pointing north, and that as much as I couldn't explain it, I was confident that the correct thing to do was to follow it home. I had to come. I knew it was gonna be hard. I was pretty sure it was gonna be terrible but I also knew that I had to do it, that there was work to be done here. The other thing I knew for sure was that I could see a big blackness. It was round and very dark. It had no light of its own, and these sharp, glassy spikes coming off of it that were so sharp, if they impacted your body, it would kill you. That's why I moved home. Because I felt like I needed to move my body toward that dark thing with the spikes. This is not an answer I felt I could give standing in the bread aisle (laughs) at the Hannaford in Bucksport. (laughs) And so I felt confused and misunderstood and like I didn't belong and set apart. And I went about my journey here. And when people would ask that question, why did you move home? I would say something that was real, but not completely true. So I would say, oh, I really wanted to buy a house. And the real estate prices here are so much better. And I have a portable salary. I telecommute, so it made sense to come home. Plus, first time home buyers credit. That's an answer. I would say, I really want to be near my family. I want to be near my niece and my nephew and my grandparents while I still can. That was real, just wasn't the full truth. And I would also say, this is my most common answer I moved home because I want free babysitting. <laughs> my intention was to have babies and to be near all of my family so that they would help me take care of them, right? That's the deal. That makes it worth being in a place that maybe isn't perfect for you, free childcare. So I set about trying to do that. And I did get pregnant the very first time I tried, which felt amazing. Nobody in the history of time has wanted a baby in their body as much as me. you have never seen anybody who wanted that more than I did. The sad thing that happened is that that baby wasn't meant to be in this world, and she died before she could be born and almost took me with her. And this is just one of many of the profound and cataclysmic heartbreaks that have happened since I moved back to Bucksport. It has been almost exclusively terrible. So many things like that happening. You have every intention of doing something that should be easy, making a family. And I wanted a biological family. I wanted to to be pregnant and nurse. And I wanted to see the faces of all those generations of grace and chase in my baby. I wanted that. I wanted to see my nephew's body in a little person. I wanted my partner's eyes. And it it didn't happen that, that time. And a tsunami of grief ripped through me. If you've ever been through it, you know. If you can imagine it, you know. There are fewer things, I think, more painful than the loss of a child. Even one that didn't get to be born and my heart broke so deeply, and this tsunami of sorrow moved through me, I truly think that the bravest thing I have ever done in my life is to stand still and let that happen, to stand still and let that grief move through my body because it was unendurably painful, but I did it. And six months later, I finally stepped out into the sun and I thought, okay, I wanna try again. When it was happening, I thought, no way, oh my gosh, I could never love anything that much and go through that much pain and loss. Plus, the doctor said, now because this has happened, you'll probably have a similar problem again. The likelihood of of good luck with your pregnancy goes down. But I thought, I'm going to try again. So I went and I saw my doctor. And I had a very painful test. And she gave me the very sad news that my body can't make babies. There were complications with that pregnancy that made my reproductive organs not available for that. Um, It's possible, she said, that if you spend tons and tons of money on IVF, you could maybe have a chance, but it probably won't work out and it'll be very expensive. So I went home heartbroken. My sister-in-law drove me home, deep heartbreak. And I thought, okay. All I have to do is get through one more day of work. It was a Thursday when I had the test. If I just get through this day of work, then I'll have some time to absorb this, and I'll figure out what, next, what to do next. So I worked my day, and the last thing on the calendar was a four o'clock meeting. So I showed up for my meeting, ready to go, and the meeting was to lay me off. So in 24 hours, (laughs) I lost access to a biological family, a really fat salary, five weeks of paid vacation time every year, health insurance, dental insurance, medical insurance, retirement plan, and I was the primary wage earner for our family. So there was also this immediate possibility that maybe I would lose my house, and it meant that the money I had saved that could have maybe been spent on IVF if I wanted to give that a go, I really couldn't do that, because then how would we live? I put food in the mouth of the child I had stuffed into my body with science. So it was a pretty bad 24 hours. Luckily for me, in the year prior to that bad day, that bad 24 hours, I had been given a gift. And I didn't know the size of the gift when it happened. But my phone rang one day, and it was our good friends at the RSU 25 adult ed. And they asked me if I would come and teach a yoga class. And I said, no, I can't do that. I'm, I'm not a yoga teacher, I'm a student. And they said, yes, you can, you can do this. And I said, oh, no, I really, I can't. I'm a a dedicated student, but I'm not a teacher. And they said, you can do this. And I said, "Okay, I can do this. (laughs) And so I went, and I tried teaching yoga. And I think the first three classes were probably a little rocky. God bless the students who stayed in that room. Some of them are still with me all these years later. But by about the third class, this magic happened. My feet felt different on the ground. My heart felt different in my body. I could feel light traveling up and down inside me. And I opened. And I understood that I had a calling. And in this case, it was a literal calling. Like my phone rang (laughs) and they said, you can do this. (laughs) Yeah, like a calling calling. And so on that bad 24 hours when I kind of lost not everything, right, but a lot of the things that we try not to lose in life were gone. I checked in with my knowing, like that place that doesn't freak out, the place inside that knew it was important to come home and also knew it was important not to go back to Hannaford for a few years until I'd figured things out. That place said, you need to be a yoga teacher. And then the universe served up a couple more gifts. One was a yoga teacher training in northern Maine, I had also signed up for an animal communication workshop, which was coming right up. So I did my yoga teacher training. And when I drove up there, I was still, remember, in this incredibly wounded, grief-stricken place of sorrow. I came back to Bucksport and more heartbreaks happened. A really bad thing happened to me at a church near here, and I was really traumatized and shut down for a long time. And when I emerged and went back to teaching, a woman came to my yoga class who I didn't know. And when she walked in the door, I could just tell she had pain. And my hands felt like dowsing, like pulled down to her body. And I asked her if it was okay if I put my hands on her body. And she said, sure. And I put my hands on my body, on her her right hip, and I said, oh my gosh, it feels like your femur got ripped out of your body, broken and stuck back in. It feels so violent. But that can't be right. What actually happened? And she said, that's what happened. I was in a car accident. That's exactly what happened, and I've been in pain every day since. It's been six months and I haven't slept through the night, not even once because of the pain. And I said, okay, let's see what we can do. And I taught my yoga class. And she came back the next week and she said, guess what? You'll never believe it. I don't have any more pain. And I slept through the night and I just started to have a little pain today. So I came back to yoga. I've never seen that woman since, and I don't know if her pain stayed away forever or not. But I know that what I felt was true, and that what I taught and gave and set out into the room in that yoga class, it relieved her pain for the first time in six months. Another woman came to my yoga class, the one I teach at the health center, a total stranger, which is rare for me, somebody local that I had no connection through no in any way. And she walked through the door, and I could see in all of her joints these, like, bunches and I knew that now I know that's what arthritis looks like. I didn't know at the time. And I offered her a chair and she said, Thank you. I have a lot of pain in my joints. And I said, I know. <laughs> and she sat down and again my hands felt like dowsing and I said, Would it be all right if I put my hands on your body? And she said, Okay. And I knew I had to touch her left thigh. And so I put my palms down on her left thigh and I got so cold. Like cold in my bones and I could see and smell snow and I could see um evergreen trees right like pine trees or something and I said to her gosh it's so so strange I I feel like you you broke your leg and I can I feel so cold when I touch it and her eyes got kind of big and she said I broke my leg skiing and I've been in pain ever since So I taught my yoga class. I never saw that woman again. I don't know if I scared her (laughs) or maybe she felt better or yoga wasn't for her, but I don't know. What I do know is that every time my heart has broken here in Maine, a new gift arrives. A new gift arrives or an old gift deepens. The singer, Yusuf Islam, who you may also know as Cat Stevens, sings, To be what you must, you must give up what you are. I think that's what I was doing when I followed my compass north. I think that's what I was doing when I moved toward the dark thing, with the gravity all its own and those dangerous spikes. I think that's what I was doing when I tried to make a family and a home here in Bucksport. And I think that's what I was doing when I became a yoga teacher and a firefighter and an animal communicator. I didn't even tell you about that part. I can talk to animals. like totally talk to animals. I do it for a living. I can feel inside their bodies. I have clients in the Arctic Circle. It doesn't matter where the animals are. They can be living or dead and I can talk to them. My main is full of fields of lupin, and the dappled sunlight on a camp road and all the bodies of water and the Orland Fire Department. And it's taken a good long while, but what I know is that my heart breaks open. It doesn't make those things hurt any less, but when my heart breaks, it breaks more open. And I know that the things that set me apart from my peers and my family and my community at large can also bond me to them. What I know now is that if you find me in the bread aisle at the Hannaford and Bucksport and you ask me, why did you move home? I will have an answer. I moved back home
3: to become who I am. Thank you. Storyteller Naomi Graychase here on Main Currents on WERU-FM. Once again, this, she's our, this is the third year at the main storytelling event that WERU sponsors that Naomi shared one of her stories with us. We're very grateful to have had her. And actually, I want to mention before we move on, that in her story, as well as in Brooks', we had to edit out a piece of the story, so I'm considering them almost bonus tracks that you'll get to hear. If you go to the archives of today's program, which will be posted by Friday afternoon at weru.org, in addition to the link that you can click on to download the entire show, I will also post the unedited versions of Brooke and Naomi's stories.
0: Oh, that'll be convenient, because then people get the whole story. That's right. This, this is another example of the incredible... It, incredible variety that you get at WERU, and and through the years of uh, listening, you've probably come to realize that you can pretty much hear anything on WERU, especially it's this like kind the of weather
3: thing. in Maine. You don't like it. Wait a
0: minute. <laughs> wait, a, wait a minute. It'd Be different. You like it. Wait a minute. That's right. One eight hundred six four three six two seven three is the way that you say. I appreciate that uh, that uh, variety that I've heard through the years, and I've never done this before. I'd like to become a new member. 1-80-646273. Six four three
3: seven three. Yeah, yeah. Or you can also call locally at four six nine sixty six hundred. And the phones haven't been ringing during this hour, but I like to think that's because people are engaged They're listening. and listening. So call after the show. Uh, go to your computer and go to WERU.org, make a pledge, and it doesn't matter the amount. We realize that five dollars to one person is the equivalent of five hundred to another. Do what works for you, but be, join us. Become part of this WERU family. 1-800-643-6273. John Greenman, our very own engineer here and my co-host today, was one of the storytellers in this next story, so we're going to have him set it up. Okay, and well... Katie, we should go yeah,
0: and that's right. Because uh, Katie and I live not too far from WERU here in Orland, and down the road is Bucksport, and we found out somebody, well... What do Portland, Boston, New York, Washington, Baltimore, Philadelphia, Cranberry Island, Orland, and Bucksport have in common, you might ask? Well, they've all been touched by this next person that we're going to be talking about, a larger-than-life 19th-century lawyer, Harvey Hadlock, who at one time lived one block from the Alamo downtown Bucksport, about four miles from our studio here in Orland. And we were touched by the Hadlock family ourselves in Orland while we were searching for Harvey, Jr. (laughs) Dateline. Portland, Maine, January twenty second, 1886.
2: New Haven Register. Singular suicide of a boy.
0: Bucksport Clipper. Shocking suicide of the son of Harvey D. Hadlock, Esquire.
2: Harvey D. Hadlock, Jr., the 15-year-old son of Harvey D. Hadlock the prominent lawyer of this city, committed suicide last evening in a very tragic and peculiar manner. Last evening, Mr. Hadlock took his son into the parlor and told him he had made arrangements to send him to school at Topsom tomorrow. The boy said he did not want to go, and upon the father insisting, he exclaimed, Well, I won't go. And rising from his chair, drew a revolver from his pocket and before his father knew what he was doing, placed it between his eyes and fired. The boy had been loath to go to school and had run away once.
0: Four years later, an 1890 biography had cleansed the tragedy. Junior, quote, accidentally shot himself while handling a revolver, unquote.
2: And sure enough, the official record of death says accidental shooting, alternate facts yeah.
0: <laughs> Jump ahead to the summer of 2013. Our badly deteriorating 1950s Alamosic Lake cabin bunk room extension was being torn down from top to bottom.
2: The roof was removed, walls detached and lowered, and boards salvaged. Then the workers started prying up the rotted wood floor plank by plank revealing granite slabs, some of them polished, some of them rough, and scattered across the ground. Hey, look at this. It's
0: half a gravestone.
2: Whoa! G. Hadlock, Jr. Next line, 4, 1870. Third line, 22, 1870. 1886.
0: Could there be another piece?
2: Look over there. In the corner over there. Flip it over.
0: Okay. First line Harvey Denham. Next line December. Third line January.
2: When placed side by side the two pieces formed a whole gravestone. Two feet long, 18 inches high, 7 inches wide, solid granite with a bas-relief spray of lilies, two buds and one in bloom across the top. Below the engraved letters read,
0: Harvey Denning Hadlock Jr., December 4th, 1870, January 22nd,
2: 1886. 1870 to 1886? He was a teenager. How did he die? Oh my God, could he be buried here?
0: rebuilding the cabin extension would have to stop until we could be sure we weren't building on a cemetery or even over a grave. But how do you prove a negative?
2: Turning to the web, we quickly found stories about Harvey Jr.'s suicide and plenty of information about his high-powered, larger-than-life attorney father.
0: Fortunately, searches at the Hancock County Registrar's Office turned up no connection between the Hancocks and our property once owned by the Buck family.
2: That was good. The reconstruction could continue.
0: But we were hooked on Harvey.
2: Where did the tombstone come from?
0: Why wasn't it in a cemetery?
2: How did it get under our cabin bunk room?
0: The director of the Maine Granite Industry Historical Society on MDI said the granite came from a Rhode Island company.
2: Newspaper articles said Junior had been buried in Portland, where he died, and then his body was moved to Bucksport a year later. Maybe his tombstone broke on the way and was dumped in a scrap heap? We had no idea.
0: So where in Bucksport was Harvey's grave?
2: Well, if you're doing research... There's only one place to start.
0: Oh, really, librarian? (laughs) Where might that be?
2: The library.
0: After hours at the Bucksport Library searching through cemetery records, nothing.
2: Okay, let's visit all the local cemeteries.
0: Well, we found one Hadlock tombstone in the McDonald Street Cemetery, but no
2: Harvey. Harvey. Then, Emmerich Spooner of the Buck Memorial Library revealed his records placing the old family cemetery, the old Hadlock family cemetery plot in the Silver Lake Cemetery. The records indicated that even though the plot had been resold in the 50s to another prominent Bucksport family,
0: no doubt for lack of attention by the Hadlock family with no descendants,
2: Harvey and his mom and dad are buried buried there. The gravestone Harvey's father had ordered for his son had been left to ruin and no doubt removed for scrap granite.
0: Which found its way to Orland and under our bunk room for foundation support.
2: Now that we knew where the gravestone belonged, we contacted the current plot owners through the Silver Lake Cemetery Association. And they
0: granted permission for us to place Harvey Jr.'s tombstone flat on the ground at the rear of the plot.
2: Did Harvey have any living relatives? Wouldn't they want to know about our finding his gravestone?
0: The internet came along again, and on genealogy.com, we connected with Tina a third cousin three times removed from Harvey Jr.'s mother. Tina had ties in Searsport, Mrs. Mrs. Hadlock's uh, birthplace, and had long been interested in the Hadlock family story.
2: On October 3rd, 2014, after a year of searches, dead ends, and thrills of discovery, our building contractor lifted the heavy heavy stones onto a backhoe and transferred them to the back of Dave's flatbed trailer for transport to the cemetery.
0: Tina arrived from New Hampshire, and with solemn reflection, we set Junior's tombstone halves together in their final resting place in Silver Lake Cemetery, not far from his earthly remains and those of his parents.
2: The spray of lilies above Harvey's name made sense now. In Victorian times in the late 1800s, the lily symbolized the returning of the soul to innocence at the time of death.
0: Matching the father's cleansing of his son's death report from suicide to accidental shooting?
2: There's something left unknown beneath the story of the gravestone and the life it memorializes. What
0: thoughts and emotions were left unreported in the life of young Harvey?
2: Was it a singular or shocking suicide of a boy? Or was it an accidental shooting? We'll never know. We do know.
0: His tombstone rests in pieces where it belongs.
2: May he rest Rest in in peace. peace.
3: John and Katie Greenman at My Maine: the state as experienced by local storytellers on July 26th, an event that was sponsored by WERU and Wednesday on Maine, held at the Alamo Theater in Bucksport, our third annual storytelling event. We'll be back on the other side to tell you more about the Pledge Drive, but you've been listening to Maine Currents, independent local news, views, and culture. I'm your host, Amy Brown. John Greenman is our studio engineer, as well as the great storyteller you just heard. Join us here every Tuesday at 4 o'clock on community radio, WERU FM, 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor, and streaming online at weru.org. 1 800 643 6273. We'll be back after a couple of messages to give you some updated totals.
2: Support for WERU comes from our listeners
3: and from